Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I think it is a question of will there be another sort of de facto, more standard way that we share data uh, across the nation? Or is this going to continue to be just a very fragmented space with lots of different networks that's each trying to carve out their own value add? I'm your host, Alan Weil. The HITECH Act, enacted as part of the much broader American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009, which was designed to help pull us out of a deep recession, ushered in major changes in healthcare's information landscape. Probably best known for the meaningful use requirements that were supported by significant funding to hospitals and doctors so they could implement electronic health records, the law also greatly boosted health information exchanges networks that share clinical information across different healthcare settings. An update on the status of all things electronic in health information is the subject of today's health policy. I'm joined by one of the nation's experts on health information exchange, Julia Adler-Milstein. Dr. Adler-Milstein is an elected member of the National Academy of Medicine and the 2017 recipient of the Alice Hirsch New Investigator Award from Academy Health, She's a professor at the University of California, San Francisco, and she and co-authors published a paper in the May 2021 issue of Health Affairs, reporting the results from their sixth national health information organization survey. The survey reveals a level of maturity in the field of health information exchange, but a few critical issues continue to threaten our ability to achieve the potential of electronic health records, and that's what we'll be discussing today. Dr. Adler Milstein, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the vision. We funded electronic health records in doctors' offices in hospitals, but we're looking to create a network of information that flows across settings. So what is the vision for health information exchange beyond the individual EHR? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the vision is and has always been a broad one of trying to be able to move information seamlessly in a way that follows patients as they traverse our fragmented healthcare delivery system. So if they go to a primary care doctor and then a specialist that practices in another setting, that their information should be able to follow them so that the specialist can pull up their past record, know what they're there for, and then be able to communicate their findings back to the primary care provider all through the electronic health record network. Seems pretty straightforward, but we've been at it for a long time. So what are the barriers? Why are we not, why, why doesn't this just sort of emerge naturally? Yeah, it is. It does feel simple, but I think uh, history has proven that it's not. Um, and unfortunately, it's because there are many different types of barriers that need to be tackled uh, and and in coordination with each other. To just give you a sense of a few of the barriers, I mean, there is the true technical piece of making sure that the systems are compatible and speaking the same language and know how to share information across them. Uh, there's also the whole issue of identity. How do we know that the primary care doc is who they say they are? How do we know that the specialist is who they say they are? Um, and so the whole issue of identity of the providers, identity of the patient, how do we know that it's the same patient we're talking about? That's another set of layered issues. Um, and then there are issues around the, the sort of broader governance of who can share with who and for what purposes. How do we know that that really is to support care um, and not, not for some other purpose? 
Um, and then, you know, last but not least, there's there's the incentives piece. Um, you know, how do we know that, uh, you know, that the organizations are aligned behind wanting the patient to uh, traverse that, you know, that particular uh, relationship between the primary care doctor and the specialist. And, and as we know, health systems, you know, want to keep keep their own patients. Um, and so there can be even an incentive not to share information if it could facilitate a patient going to a competitor. Yeah, I want to stay there for a moment. I know we're going to get into the technology side, but this notion of sort of the proprietary nature of information as a barrier to what would be good clinical care is just, it's the kind of thing that if you haven't spent a lot of time on it, it just kind of boggles your mind. So why might one part of the healthcare system not want me when I go somewhere else automatically bring all of that information that would be good for me to have when I go see that other clinician? Why would one place not want me to have such an easy time taking that with me? Yeah. So I think it's important to acknowledge that most frontline clinicians want that information and feel that it's clearly in the best interest of their decision-making to have it. So it's rarely a, a clinician that's saying, don't share that. Um, but it is a question when you get up to the organizational priorities, how much is an organization going to prioritize sharing their patient's information in a way that makes it easy for their patients to go elsewhere for care? And that's where, frankly, when you walk into the CFO's office and say, we really want to make this a, an organizational priority and spend money to make it happen, it's, you know, it's hard pressed for the CFO to say, yes, that sounds like a wise investment for our organization. So, so again, this is not, it's not the fault of, of these decision makers. It's the environment in which they're operating and which it still could be a disadvantage to make it easier for your patients to get care elsewhere, even if that's best in the best interest of the patient. Well, I have a funny feeling we'll be coming back to that topic, but let's start with the building blocks. So high tech is enacted. And I remember all this talk about meaningful use, that every doctor's office needs to become electronic, there are funds to invest in it, that that's sort of the platform. And I'm sure some of our listeners weren't around then or paying attention then. Uh, so let's start with the, the the foundation here. Where are we in the adoption of electronic health records? Where did we come from? And what's that world look like now? I think it's unquestionably uh, uh, been a dramatic change over the past 10 years in terms of how digitized uh, our health records are. There's some disagreement exactly about how to count where we were when we started, but I think, you know, depending on on how, you know, you look at it, you know, most hospitals and doctor's offices only had a very basic electronic system in place. Uh, you know, they were tracking, you know, basic information, your lab results, your medications. Um, but uh, compared to where we are today, where the vast majority, more than 80% of both ambulatory clinics and hospitals have mature, fully functional electronic health records. And that's a lot of change in a very short amount of time. Um, so, so I think it is just, you know, you feel confident now that when you walk into a hospital or a doctor's office, the majority of what they're doing to support your care is done in an electronic health record. You conducted a survey of health information organizations. Now, I know they look really different. Uh, there are quite a few types, but can you give me a sense of what is an HIO? Sure. You know, maybe before I do, just one important piece, which is to say that even though uh, our health system has been digitized and we have electronic health records in place, um, each 
electronic health record system and the way it's used uh, can document information slightly differently. Um, because that's really what then creates the need to create the networks to facilitate sharing is that they were not built from the start to share information. Um, and so uh, so we essentially digitized silos of information and and then realized, not, not realized, but sort of had pushed to a second phase uh, the work of trying to connect them all. Um, and, and I think we really underestimated how complex that connecting them all was going to be. And we've taken a lot of different approaches to doing that connecting. And so HIOs are just one of the ways to do that connecting. Um, and largely what differentiates them from other ways of, of connecting is that they tend to be geographically bounded. So it will be a community, a geographic community, uh, where people get the majority of their care. So for me, I live in San Francisco. So perhaps we'd think about it as the Bay Area, as the region where most people who live here get their care. And we'd identify the main healthcare providers in our geographic area and say, how do we build the infrastructure and governance to allow data to move across the set of healthcare entities? Uh, because we know that we're sharing patients. Um, and so we should also be able to, to be able to share data. So these HIOs are the third-party entities that come in, get those healthcare stakeholders around the table, and help them figure out figure out how to sort of tie their systems together in a way that allows data to move. So we'll come back to who else is doing that in a moment. But just first up, um, you already mentioned that the CFO may not be that enthusiastic about sharing information. You're now talking about an entirely new enterprise that didn't exist. What kind of a business model can an enterprise like that have if most of its customers are skeptical that they even want to be doing this? You've really hit the nail on the head. It is a hard business to be in. And um, and again, many of these HIOs are not for profit, you know, 401c3s, like they are trying to do the right thing. They're not trying, they're not, you know, for profit tech startup companies that think this is, you know, the next way to, to make a lot of money. So, so I think that is important to recognize that the business model, I think, has always been um, more perhaps mission driven than, um, you know, than financially driven. Though that being said, you know, many of, uh, of these HIOs have figured out a way to make a sustainable business model that that involves the participants paying um, in. Uh, and, and in some cases that can come from administrative efficiencies. So um, when you are moving data around electronically, there are some efficiencies as opposed to needing to pay staff to copy and fax records. And so, you know, there's ways to make the business case around that. There are also ways, especially as we move into value-based payment models, to argue that, no, it really is in the best interest of uh, an organization to know where else their patients are getting care. And I think we've really seen these HIOs become more sustainable as value-based payment has grown. So I think that's a really key piece. Um, and then there, you know, I think there is some degree of, of just the sense that it is the right thing to do. The paper you published with us uh, is comes out of a survey. So just tell us a little bit about the background of that survey. I mean, in some ways, because these organizations are so unique in what they're trying to do, 
we felt that it was really important to track their progress over time. How many of them are there? How are they supporting their uh, their their operating expenses? Uh, who who's involved? Who, who which stakeholders are providing and receiving data? What is the scope of data uh, that's being exchanged? And and so we've been able to track sort of these different dimensions of of these organizations uh, and understand how they have evolved um, from something that at the start there were just really a handful and they were exchanging a pretty limited set of data uh, to now, I think, a pretty mature set of organizations that not only exchange data, but are also oftentimes providing analytics on top of that data and, and providing far more value to the healthcare participants that are making their data available than just saying, well, we're going to move it across the street so that, you know, so that a doctor can see it. And that's, I think, really going forward, going to be continuing to, to how they, uh, they, they not only survive, but thrive. Well, I want to go a little deeper into what you found in the survey, but we'll uh, do that after we take a short break. Great. Hi, I'm Leslie Erdelak. And I'm Vabron Watts. Hey, Leslie, the Health Affairs Podcast Network is really growing. I know, Vabe, our new podcast, Health Affairs This Week, places listeners at the center of health policy's proverbial water cooler. Each week, our trusted editors discuss this week's most pressing health policy news, all in 15 minutes or less. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen and join the fun. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Julia Adler-Milstein about health information organizations. Before the break, you were describing a survey that you've now conducted six times, and you were just tantalizing us a bit with some of the findings. Um, Let me focus in one spot, uh, really gets at where the discussion is today, you focus in the paper on TEFCA, an acronym I must say I hadn't uh, come across before reading the paper. Tell us what it is and what it's seeking to accomplish. I think that's an important backdrop for those survey results. TEFCA is the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement. And before I explain what TEFCA is, let me just one more piece of, of context, which is that Over the past 10 years, these HIOs have sprung up across the country, and it's really been a bottom-up process of where they are, where they've developed. Um, And it turns out that the experience of hospitals and doctor's offices and others is that they are often asked to participate in multiple networks because many of them are in the same state or geography and uh, and that's sort of not optimal. <laughs> Ideally, you could connect once and be able to share information with anyone, uh, any other provider organization that's um, treating your patient. Um, and so TEFCA really comes in at that moment in time where a lot of these networks have sprung up, um, as well as other types of exchange networks, and said, we need a framework that is more of a network of networks that allows a participant to join one network, but then that network can talk to other networks. And so this trusted exchange framework and common agreement is the agreement that allows networks to share information with each other. And so it's sort of um, in some ways taming a little bit of the let a thousand flowers bloom trajectory that these organizations have been on, where we now have a lot of them and they're doing great work, but they're not all stitched together. Earlier on, you mentioned that these HIOs are one way to exchange data, but there are other entities out there that are in that same business. 
Uh, those are another set of a thousand flowers. So why don't you tell us who else is in this space? As we figure out how we're going to align, we we need to have a full sense of who who needs to do the aligning. That's right. So HIOs are just one type of network, and and they range from hyper local. They could be in a very very small region, um, all the way up to statewide exchanges. So Maryland, for example, has a statewide exchange. Michigan. So so HIOs as a group are defined by geography, but do really range in size. And then the electronic health record vendors have also, some subset of them have also stood up their own networks that make it easy or easier to share information with other facilities that are using that same vendor's platform. So Epic is probably the best well-known and uh, best known network. Um, They have uh, a network across all Epic users. Um, Athena Health is another example of, of a EHR vendor that has a good network that allows sharing across. Um, and so that works well if patients were only to go <laughs> to, to a doctor that use one EHR vendor, but that's clear that that's not what we want um, and not, not how uh, it works in reality. So that's a second type of network that's really organized around which vendor you use, not geography. Um, and we've also then seen some types of network of networks that have emerged, um, not a single national one, but there are some networks that help connect for example, these two different types of electronic health record vendor networks. So again, it's just a very complicated time because there's a lot of networks and some are connecting to each other and some are not. Um, and, and so I think, again, Tefka is trying to bring uh, at least one umbrella over all of them that says, if you can adhere to this framework, it should mean that no matter what network or networks a given hospital or doctor's office or lab is a part of, they can share data with others. I gather in looking over the course of the six surveys you've done that some of the technical and standardization issues are diminishing. I mean, at the very beginning, when we talked about challenges, you talked about sort of digitization and uh, it does seem like that has largely sort of settled. We, it's like, we know how to do this. Now we have to do it. Is that, is that about right? Yeah, I have to say that finding surprised us. I was not expecting to see that some of the technical barriers were reported far less often in our most recent survey. But I think you're right that we really, we have had experience on the technical side. We sort of know what it takes to move data from different systems. We know where some of the technical challenges lie. And so they haven't necessarily gone away, but we know how to deal with them. The solutions are more mature. And I do think that's brought into focus then some of the other challenges around fragmentation of the networks and just what is the business model, um, especially as the space gets more and more crowded, who's doing what? And if I'm a hospital, how do I decide who to sign up with? Um, and in, in, including some places where there's no one to sign up with, like there, there are some geographies that don't have any of these networks there too. And so what do you do if you're in one of those uh, geographies? So again, we're trying to solve all these different problems of both the space being too crowded and, and perhaps not crowded enough, depending on where you are in the country. You know, a term that comes up a lot in discussions about health information that you don't hear in most of the rest of healthcare is this term of governance. And I'm sitting here thinking, you know, a geography uh, may have align with a an obvious type of governance. A state has boundaries and we know who's in it. Uh, an EHR vendor has a very different set of boundaries. And, you know, we talk a lot about hospitals and doctors, but there are a lot of other elements to the clinical enterprise 
uh, labs and images and much less getting into topics of uh, behavioral health and and, uh, parts that are generally further behind. How do we overlay? So standardization, I think of as sort of as technical, but governance is is governance. It's control and authority and 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 who sets the rules of the road. If I'm, you mentioned how as a hospital do I figure out who to join? How do I think about the governance elements of these different uh, actors? Yeah, again, that's really the problem that Tefka is trying to solve is to say, if we have a single nationwide trusted exchange framework and common agreement, then if a network is adhering to that common agreement, then I as the hospital shouldn't have to worry about it. If I join a network that is part of this framework, then essentially that, you know, they're, they're, they're part of this common agreement. Um, and so that I think it's 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 taking that work off the hospital's shoulders. In your example, uh, that's exactly what's trying to happen today because it is it's extremely complicated to try to figure out not just the technical functionality you're getting with each network, but what is the governance framework and approach, um, and and what does that mean in terms of what you have to do as an organization or what you might need to worry about in terms of are you giving your data to someone who you know shouldn't have it. So so it's really trying to simplify today what is what has gotten quite complex. So I want you to look into your crystal ball of the seventh and the eighth and maybe the ninth surveys. And you've seen this evolution. What's next? Where do you think the questions are for the future? Where do you think the challenges are? What would you like to know about the evolution of this field in the next five plus years? Yeah, I mean, it's important to note that Tefka is A, not finalized and B, voluntary. And so we actually don't know whether it is going to sort of tame the heterogeneity that exists across the networks today or not. Um, And if it doesn't get taken up, then I think it is a question of will there be another sort of de facto, more standard way that we share data uh, across the nation? Um, Or is this going to continue to be just a very fragmented space with lots of different networks that's each trying to carve out their own value add? It's hard. When I look into my crystal ball, I very much hope that Tefka or something like it exists because I do think today it's uh, there's too much cost and complexity that is involved in moving information around. And um, and I hope that in a future state, there is a much more sort of single national but lightweight approach to do that, um, that just aligns some of the rules of the road. Uh, and that, again, at the end of the day, a patient just wants to be able to show up and get the best care and know that their information is there so that their doctor can make the best decision. Um, and I think with some of the payment reform pieces we talked about earlier, uh, the organizational incentives are starting to align behind that as well. So I think as long as we continue pushing for value-based care and, and patients continue to advocate uh, for, uh, you know, for not needing to worry about whether their data is moving, I think those forces together uh, will be strong enough to push towards Tefka or some similar framework that helps uh, stitch together these, these pockets of exchange that exist today. You know, as you were answering, I couldn't help but think back to meaningful use because a lot of the language you just used is what was used at the time, not everyone agreed that that's what was happening, but certainly rhetorically, the idea was the government should be the standard setter, not the manufacturer. It shouldn't choose which EHR you use, but it should tell you what to expect when you get it. There was a lot of chaos. Uh, It's settled some. So I don't quite even know how to ask this question, but 
how do you think the lessons from meaningful use have affected the approach in Tefka? I mean, I think we tried to do a lot with the High Tech Act and meaningful use, and um, and I think you know it was moving quickly and the scope was vast. But I mean, Health Information Exchange was in the original legislation that said what the money was going towards. So I think again, this has been part of the vision from the start. Uh, but there was a, a perhaps an underappreciation of how hard it was going to be. And so really, there's been a, a, a very much a narrowing of focus um, of federal policy efforts on interoperability. I, it's, the, it's hard to quantify, but I think it's the vast majority of what they are working on today. Um, and so I do think that that is right. I mean, this should be uh, an, act, an area in which our you know, federal policymakers are highly active. And we've seen some additional legislation that continues to focus on on, on getting this right. Um, and so I do think, you know, having the policy framework uh, in place and continue to move forward and whether that means that TEFCA becomes uh, no longer voluntary or, you know, I mean, I think there's there's a couple of, of ways that policymakers may take things forward. I think they're waiting to see what you know, whether the voluntary approach works. Um, and if not, then I think they will think about other policy levers that that may need to be put in place. Uh, and again, I think in, it's this very careful dance with value-based payment because that that fixes some of the incentives. And if we can just fix the incentives without having to mandate something, I think we all feel like that's a better way to, to use policy. Well, before I let you go, I have to ask, this is an emerging field and you picked it up. You've really become very much identified as uh, a leader in understanding this topic. I just uh, love to hear what got you interested in this and how did you start and build such a strong uh, foundation of knowledge and research in this area? A, a bit of it is luck that I was starting my career uh, at a moment in time when, I mean, high tech hadn't even been <laughs> conceived of. And, um, and I, you know, was starting my research career, really being interested in how much technology had changed other industries and thinking about like, why, why is it so much harder in healthcare? Um, and so, so I, I, I had, I think those interests coming in and then, uh, was, uh, you know, was starting to be trained as a researcher, uh, as, as high tech was getting formulated and passed. And then it just created this fascinating set of questions about how do we use policy as a lever to drive technology forward and just what a, um, you know, one time visionary, uh, set of, uh, regulations high tech was, I mean, no other industry has had such active policy engagement in, in trying to propel it forward. We did the best we could at the, that point in time without a lot of precedent of how do you use policy as a lever. Um, but for me, it just has turned into a career of interesting questions about how the role policy has in driving technology forward, uh, with a clear vision of trying to improve health system performance. Well, in that career, you have helped us uh, greatly understand this evolution, and uh, I appreciate that as a reader, and I also appreciate you taking some time with me. Uh, Dr. Adler Milstein, thank you for being my guest today on A Health Policy. Thanks for the terrific conversation. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about A Health Policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.